0: Are ready to get going and uh, as always we are going to start with a word of prayer so if you would please bow your heads let us pray dear Lord Heavenly Father we give you thanks for this night we thank you for the opportunity to be able to study this amazing book that teaches us so much about you and your kingdom Lord we thank you for having brought us through the summer and having brought us to this night, and I thank you for each person here, either in person or on the live stream or the podcast, we pray that as we journey into this book that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit, that we would be drawn more and more to the person of Jesus Christ, and we would be transformed more and more into his likeness. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a great joy for me to be back up here and for us to be engaging uh, this particular book, uh, which is one of my favorites. And as we go through this book, uh, you're going to find that there are probably a lot of layers in here that if you've read it before that you might not have noticed. So we're gonna be unpacking that. And uh, as always, we have a little musical selection for you to see if you can figure out what the music is. And I have to say uh, that this is probably the easiest one I have ever done. Not to say my standards are slipping, uh, but possibly. So let me see if I can get this to, whoops. This part sounds kind of ominous. Such a great guess, but no. Somebody back there should know what this is. Yes. Yes, so that is the uh, theme song for the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe movie in the Chronicles of Narnia, And, and that particularly is what is called the battle theme. And one of the things that happens in the Chronicles of Narnia is there's an early battle, and then we move through all of them to this book, which is the last battle. So, uh, we have a new scripture verse for this class that I would invite you to join with me in saying, one of the things we will unpack in this book, and one of the great themes in it, is the whole idea of what it means to be free creatures of the king, and how important it is to understand that that is where our identity is found. So please join me in saying this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, for those of you who are new, who have not been to one of these Lewis classes, or those of you who are joining us on the podcast, there are several ways to approach this class. And I am perfectly happy to have you at any one of these levels. You can be what we call on the beach. And what that means is that you are like lying on the beach. You're not necessarily paying attention. You might be having a nice drink of some description. Um, You might even be reading a different book but you are sort of here and kind of interested. And that is totally fine. If that's what you want to do, that is great. Or you can be a snorkeler. Such a fun word to say, snorkeler. Uh, Which means on the parts that you find interesting, you can go deeper. You can read the extra handouts. You can, in the class email, uh, look at all of the links that are in there. But then on the parts that you're less interested in, you could just ignore them. Or if you are a nerd like I am, you can scuba dive, which means that you will follow every little rabbit hole that there is, and every rabbit trail, and every squirrel uh, that goes by, and you will be able to see all of these wonderful things and how they're all connected in Lewis's mind to what's going on in this book. Uh, So whichever of those levels, I'm delighted to have you. Um, The email list is something that's really important. If you're already getting the emails, for example, if you got the email yesterday afternoon uh, that said class is starting tomorrow, that means you're good to go. If you did not get that, unless you've blocked me on purpose, uh, that probably means that you have not signed up for the email list. So please sign up on that pad over there and that will get you on the list I send out a variety of resources including a class summary in case you were accidentally on the beach one week when you didn't mean to be and you didn't notice what happened, Um, you can go back and read the summary and that will help you. Um, A couple of things about how to read this book. One of the great things about this book is it's very readable. But in that lies the danger because it's really easy because it's a great storyline. It's really easy to just get caught up in the story and kind of miss some of what's going on. So I'd encourage you to try reading aloud and reading slowly, looking for layers of meaning. And if you want to read ahead, go right ahead, read it right to the end of the book, except I'll warn you, if you read the end of the book without crying, um, I will be shocked, Uh, but it's a good kind of crying. one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to try to go slowly so we can chew on uh, some of the wondrous things that Lewis has going on here. So, a couple of things as we begin this book. This book was completed 70 years ago uh, and first published in 1956 and published with illustrations by Pauline Baines that are part of what has shaped many of our imaginations about what Narnia looks like, uh, helped shape what they did in the movie. We're gonna talk a little more about her. But this is a fascinating book because it is classic Lewis, where you're not quite sure what this book actually is. So is it a marvelous capstone work that draws all of the children's Narnia stories to a fitting close? or? Is it a profound reflection on the sin of Eden, the means of grace, and the glory of heaven? Or is it a parable about following Jesus that's particularly applicable in 21st century America and the importance of the concept of word and the concept of truth? And what I would like to suggest to you is that it is all three of those things and more besides. And that is part of what Lewis's genius is. Because you can read this book as a five-year-old or have it read to you as a five-year-old and be riveted by it and love it and fully enjoy it even though you don't know what's going on at these other levels. And I would suggest to you that the Chronicles of Narnia, all of them, this one in particular, but really all of them, are one of the great treasures of Christian wisdom about what it means to live boldly for Jesus, to live into the kingdom of God, but that they're hiding in plain sight. We are so used to them, and we're so used to thinking they're only for children that we miss out on the glory and the really practical help that is in these books. So I hope, and I'm just gonna tell you right up front, I have an agenda for you. um, And that is to make you want to read all of the Narnia books. Even if you already read them, I'm hoping to make you want to go back and read them again because they are glorious. And I will tell you, uh, it is very important to not follow, if you get the boxed set, don't read them in the order that they're numbered on there. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But you will see that there's a lot going on in these pictures. We have trees, we have beasts, we have scary looking people, we have people in armor, uh, we have a beautiful woman in a dress, we have a fawn, we have a wall. There are lots of things that are going on here. So, a little bit of context. So, those of you that have been to these classes before know about C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. The Inklings are his friends, his band of brothers, um, those people that Lewis described as an informal club whose qualifications are a tendency to write and Christianity. And the Inklings, I think a good theme verse for thinking about the Inklings is this verse from Philippians that I would love for us to say together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I wanna just notice the last part of that The God of peace will be with you. We live in probably the most anxious age in the history of the world. And we have been given by the word of God a prescription to deal with that right here. So if you feel anxious, I would suggest that you memorize this and do what it says and see what the result might be. So the Inklings were gathered around Lewis and Tolkien and Oxford. In the 1930s, they were very concerned about what we call the transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. And they wanted to engage the culture to bring these ideas back, because they felt that the world was falling into despair and into sadness. And they wanted to mount a countercultural offensive about how to live and think like Christians in a post-Christian world. And that mission has become even more important today than it was then. And they were very interested in the power of fellowship and community. And Lewis uh, loved the idea, as did Tolkien, that stories were the best way to communicate truth to people. Rather than standing up here and saying, this is the truth, go do it. The best way is to draw you into a story where you care about the characters, you can feel the breeze, you can feel the sun on your face and hear the water in the distance. And as you feel all of those things, you enter in and then you begin to experience the truth that the story is conveying. One of the things I loved about Lewis is that he is uh, a prolific correspondent and most of his letters survived. And one of his favorite correspondents was Sister Penelope. And Sister Penelope, uh, no relation to Penn good, but Sister Penelope uh, was a nun in a community of nuns at a place called Wantage. And she was a brilliant woman, and they used to write back and their letters are hilarious. But one of the things he said to Sister Penelope in 1939, and remember that's a really important year, because what happened in 1939? World War. Wow, y'all are good. World War II broke out. And Lewis said, any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under cover of romance without their knowing it. And you have to remember, he's not talking about romance like kissy-kissy. He's talking about romance in terms of romantic literature, which he was an expert on and he was a professor of. So as we look at these stories, we should be looking for the theology that is smuggled in. So the Chronicles of Narnia, I would submit to you, are works of genius, and they were written in an unbelievably short period of time. Virtually all of them were written in a three-year period. Now, don't feel bad about your own productivity. (laughs) But they were written in a three-year period while rationing was still going on, while there was still a paper shortage uh, while things were very, very bleak in England. And Lewis wrote all of these, uh, and several people, including his good friend Tolkien, felt like that they were sort of slipshod, that why were there seven of them, why were they organized or disorganized the way they were? And several critics said they thought, you know, this, Lewis is just um, going too quickly. He was not being as careful as usual. But if you really know anything about Lewis's work, it is impossible for Lewis to do anything that is not very thoughtful and intentional. And so over the years, um, there's been this back and forth in the scholarly world about why are there seven of these? Why do they not necessarily seem to relate to each other um, in a sequential fashion? And then along came someone who was a brilliant Lewis scholar and knew all of Lewis's work, and he started reading the Chronicles of Narnia again as an adult, and he had not just the light bulb go off, but like the aurora borealis happen. And he said, oh my goodness, I now understand the whole organizational scheme of the Chronicles of Narnia. And not only is it there, but it is brilliant. And how is it that no one ever discovered this? Now, many of you know, if you've been in this class, that Lewis was a professor of medieval literature. He loved the medieval period. He wrote a great book called The Discarded Image that's about the medieval worldview. And in the medieval period, there was the idea of the seven planets, the seven heavens. And so what Michael Ward, this great scholar who was a professor at Oxford, as well as a priest, realized was that each of these Chronicles of Narnia corresponds to one of the seven planets in the medieval cosmology. Now that's pretty specialized. And he wrote this book that's about this thick, Proving it wow. and the book came out and all of the Lewis scholars were like If this were true one of us brilliant people would have figured that out long ago He doesn't know what he's talking about and then over a period of months as people started looking at his research they said you know what he's right and There's a great little short version of his book over there that's called The Narnia Code um, that I would highly recommend to you. And part of the reason that Lewis did this and why this is important in understanding Narnia is that Lewis in Narnia is trying to cover the whole scope of God's creation, God's purposes, God's creation, life, the meaning of life, purpose, meaning, all of those things are incorporated into these seven books, and it is wondrous. So The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was the first one written, followed by Prince Caspian, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, The Silver Chair, The Horse and His Boy, The Magician's Nephew, and The Last Battle. And I mentioned a minute ago, if you're going to reread these, please do not read them in the boxed set order that says one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you may think, why are you such a rebel? Um, But I will tell you I am such a rebel because Lewis didn't want them read that way. Um, He wanted them read in the order in which he wrote them. And the reason for that is he very carefully, and we talked about this in The Great Divorce, he letters little hints about things in his early books so that when you finally get to the explanation later, there's this huge aha moment Um, that brings you great joy. But if you start with the explanation without doing the puzzle, you miss out on all of the fun. So The Magician's Nephew, the sixth book is the prequel that explains everything going on. But you shouldn't read it until after you've read the other ones. And then the last battle is the culminating one. The last battle was awarded the Carnegie Award, which is the highest award for children's literature given in the UK was a huge honor. And part of what you have to get your head around here is that Lewis had also recently won another honor, uh, which was the Golanx Prize. I'm sure you're very familiar with that, um, which is a very erudite academic prize for academic research writing. And No one, so far as I know, in the history of English literature, has ever won both of those medals. The idea that this erudite scholar could write the book that won the award as the best children's book of the year is quite remarkable. Uh, The enduring popularity of these books is just incredible. There are well over 100 million copies sold in 47 languages. I saw one statistics that said, if you take all of the Chronicles of Narnia together, there's still over a million sold every year. If you look at books that are significant to people in the 20 to 30 age range, um, the Chronicles of Narnia are in the top three. Um, Waterstones, uh, which is a huge chain like Barnes and Noble in England, um, had a huge survey of tens of thousands of people, and The Line*, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, the first of the Chronicles of Narnia, was voted the best English language children's story of all time. That's pretty astounding. In 2018, Netflix paid over $250 million for the rights to develop more Narnia films. And I would love to say that is because Netflix has a passion for the gospel and transforming the culture. However, I pledge to only speak the truth when I'm up here. And the reason for that is not that Netflix likes Narnia, uh, but their market research told them that this is what people love, and this is what people want, and so they're going to try to provide it. And I just heard this wonderful anecdote Um, about the enduring popularity of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, When I was in Oxford a couple of weeks ago, I was meeting uh, for a long pub night with my friend Simon Harbin, uh, who some of y'all heard at Mere Anglicanism, uh, who has Lewis's old job at Magdalen College, Oxford. And if you know anything about Oxford or Cambridge, at the end of the year after exams, they have what are called the May Balls. And each college has its own ball. And these things look like a Tara Garrard wedding. Um, There is a big budget, sometimes in the six figures, and there's a theme that's kept secret till the last minute. Only members of the college and their one guest can come. They sell out immediately. And uh, Maudelin, where Simon is and where Lewis was, Uh, for their May Ball just uh, at the end of May this year, nobody knew what the theme was going to be. And um, Oxford, like many other uh, universities and colleges, has got a pretty liberal streak these days. And uh, Simon was asked by the student body president uh, if he would be the advisor for the May Ball. And he was like, oh no. (laughs) Uh, because you never know what that is going to entail. He said, the only thing you know for sure is it means you're gonna be up all night the night of the May ball. But he agreed, but they never told him anything about what the theme was. So it's a black tie event, and so the night for the ball came, and they were all gathered in the walled courtyard on the backside of Maudlin along a street that's called Longwall Street, because there's a long wall uh, that was built in the 1200s. And so they're all in there just on this lawn waiting for something to happen. And as things uh, moved toward the appointed hour, there were these curtains over part of the wall in the center. And at the appointed moment, some bells rang and the curtains opened and there was a wardrobe. And then people flung open the doors of the wardrobe and all of the guests walked through a fur-lined wardrobe into the next courtyard, which was covered with snow, and had fawns and a lamppost. And the theme was through the wardrobe, and of course it was the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And out of anything that these students could have chosen, these brilliant, Magdalen's one of the best colleges in Oxford, these brilliant students chose that was the theme, not Beyonce or Whatever else they could have chosen, that was the theme they wanted. So there's an enduring popularity here. Um, the origins of Nerni are really interesting, and I should have said this at the get go. We're not really getting to the book tonight. This is all context, context, but it will help you appreciate the book when we get there. So this book started, remember, it was written, does anybody remember what year I said? 1953. 1953, so 1907, 46 years earlier, Lewis wrote to his brother Warney that he was writing a history of mouse land. Lewis was nine years old at this point. He was writing an epic history of mouse land, which he eventually combined with his brother's love of India to form an imaginary kingdom called Boxen whose main characters are dressed and talking animals. Lewis developed an entire history of boxing and a political structure for it in his early teens. Then in 1914, when Lewis was 16 years old, he had this vivid impression where this image dropped into his brain of a fawn carrying an umbrella and parcels in a snowy wood. And he made a sketch of it, and it kept coming back in his dreams. And sometimes when he'd be doing academic work, it would just come back over and over again. So then in 1939, right before Britain declared war on Germany, four evacuee children arrived at Lewis's home. Lewis was not married, he did not have children. He lived with his brother, and they had a bachelor pad. And they were not used to having children, to say the least. And he ended up housing several groups of children through the war because he believed it was his duty. And about this time, Lewis started a, stu- a story about four evacuee children from London sent to stay with an old professor, which is what Lewis was. And he was very disappointed when he asked these children, staying with him, what are your favorite stories? They just went, uh. <laughs> And they didn't really have any. And he asked them, do you like to write stories? And they are like, uh. And so he was very concerned and he decided to write a story for them. And he scribbled down some notes and opening sentences and he named the children Anne, Martin, Rose and Peter um, who were sent away from London to go stay with an old professor. So these are some pictures from Boxen that Lewis drew at age 10. Now I'm sure all of us We're drawing like that at age 10. The perspective is exactly right. The colors and angles and everything else are quite precise. Even the body language and expressions, it is quite remarkable. So in 1948, Lewis began to seriously work on the idea of the Narnia books. Following his publication of Miracles and his famous debate about it with Elizabeth Anscombe at the Oxford Socratic Club. And he said, All these books began with pictures in my head, and the fawn with the umbrella and the parcels in the snowy wood was the main one. And he said, At first I had very little idea how the story would go, but then suddenly Aslan came bounding into it. And he said, I think I've been having a lot of dreams of lions. And once he was there, He pulled the whole story together. And then in 1954, responding to a letter from some children, I did not say to myself, let us represent Jesus, as he really is in our world, by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and the Son of God, as he became a man in our world, became a lion there, and then imagine what would happen. Now Lewis was passionate about his views about children's stories, and he was very upset at what he considered to be a trend of boring and stupid children's stories that assumed that children were too dumb to understand or enjoy anything that had real merit to it. And he was determined to write different children's stories that were back in the genre of ones that were really great. And he said, a children's story that can only be enjoyed by children is not a good children's story in the slightest. No book is really worth reading at the age of 10, which is not equally and often far more worth reading at the age of 50 and beyond. One shudders to think what Lewis would make of things like Captain Underpants. So this is something that is uh, I think quite remarkable. This is a letter that was unknown, that came up in auction several years ago. And it was a letter that Lewis had written to some school children at Gretelton House School in Wiltshire, and it's dated May 22nd, 1952. And it talks all about the framework for all seven of the Chronicles of Narnia. And other letters show that he had finished the first draft of the last battle in spring of 1953, just after this. But I also want you to just notice, um, this is a handwritten, thoughtful letter being sent to school children. Lewis had a vast correspondence with children. And there's a whole book called Letters to Children, uh, which gathers Lewis's letters together. If you've never read those, Please do, they're just absolutely remarkable. And one of the great things about them is that he clearly has a very high view of children and thinks that they're interesting and that they might be great people to dialogue with about his stories. And I know that's probably a little bit hard to read um, right there from where you're sitting. So I'm just going to read this um, letter to you. It's quite charming. So, the school is Gretelton House, so he writes the letter, my dear Greteltonians, thanks for your nice and interesting letters. Like you, I am sorry that Peter and Susan are not coming back to Narnia, but I think being the two eldest, they are now getting to the age at which people stop having that sort of adventure for a time. They may start having it again later, but not for some years. The new book I'm writing is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Lucy and Edmund find Caspian, now King of course, on board ship, sailing to the eastern end of the Narnian world. There will be lots about Reepicheep, and there will be a sea serpent and a dragon and lots of strange islands. I do hope you will all like it. I intend to have seven of these stories altogether. together. That is four more after the next one. They will be called the Chronicles of Narnia. The sixth book will go right back to the beginning and explain how there came to be that magic wardrobe in the professor's house. For of course, you will have guessed that the old professor must have known something about things like that himself or else he would never have believed what the children told him. I don't know yet what will happen in the seventh book. What do you think would be a good thing to end the whole series with? Of course, Aslan will come into them all. I wonder what other books you all like. I like George MacDonald's two Curdy books and Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Wind and the Willows. Do you write stories yourselves? I did at your age. It is the greatest fun. Love and good wishes to you all. Yours ever. C.S. Lewis. P.S. E. Nesbitt's books are splendid, I think, especially The Phoenix and the Wishing Carpet and The Amulet. Now, we could spend a long time on that letter, but that is a window into the heart of C.S. Lewis. This is one of the most famous men in the world at this point. His voice, most recognized in the UK, second only to Winston Churchill, having been on the cover of Time magazine in the United States. And he's writing these children in this little school in the backwater of Welcher and asking them, what should I write the seventh book about? I mean, it is quite remarkable. The humility that came into Lewis's life when he met Jesus transformed him. And that quality is something that you're going to see running through this book. So um, this is the image that Pauline Baines captured uh, for Lewis, um, the one that kept coming to his brain starting when he was 16. And Pauline Baines has this great story about how she came to be the illustrator, not only for these books, but for The Hobbit. And Lewis told her that he had actually gone into a bookshop. Does anybody know what the bookshop is on Broad Street in Oxford? It's really famous. Blackwell's. Blackwell's. bookshop. So he had gone into Blackwell's bookshop and went up to the cashier and asked if she could recommend someone who could draw children and animals. That is not very strategic. I don't know whether he was just being kind to me and making me feel that I was more important than I was or whether he'd simply heard about me from his friend Tolkien. Lewis was the most kindly and tolerant of authors who seemed happy to leave everything in my completely inexperienced hands. Once or twice I queried the sort of character he had in mind as with Puddleglum. Puddleglum is in the silver chair. Um, He is a marsh wiggle. If you haven't read The Silver Chair, you have so much to look forward to. Uh, and then he replied, but otherwise he made no remarks or criticisms. I had rather the feeling that having got the story written down and out of his mind, the rest was someone else's job and he wouldn't interfere. But look at this. Um, there's so much that you can tell there. You, know, you can see that there is love and trust there. You can see this, always winter and never Christmas. Um, Her illustrations are just brilliant. So I want to give a little background on some of the characters that have come from the other Narnia stories. And I do want to emphasize the last battle can stand completely on its own. You do not need to have read the other Narnia stories to profit from this book. So if you have friends that might be interested in this and they think, well, I haven't read the other six, it really is totally fine. Um, But there are a few things that are helpful in terms of background, and the characters Aslan, Tyrion, Eustace, and Jill um, could benefit from a little explanation. So Aslan, of course, uh, is the uh, great character of all Narnia. Aslan is the great lion, uh, the one who is the Christ figure. Um, The name Aslan comes from the Turkish word for lion. And he's introduced in the very first book, which is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, not The Magician's Nephew, Uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he is introduced as the son of the emperor beyond the sea. And he is the great lion, the Christ figure, and he is the creator of Narnia. And in that sixth book, not first, the sixth book, The Magician's Nephew, there's one of the my 10 top favorite scenes written by CS Lewis, which that's really hard to make that list. But uh, in that scene, Aslan starts in an empty black void of night and he begins to sing. And as he sings, he sings this melody that the cab driver who's there said it was the sort of music that made you wanna be a better man. And another person with him said, it was by a vast measure, the most incomparably beautiful sound he had ever heard. And as the singing starts, stars populate the firmament, trees grow out of the ground, rivers are formed, lakes, animals spring up, Aslan sings Narnia into creation and it is beautiful. And then uh, in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, we see that evil has been introduced into Narnia as the white witch comes in. And because of Edmund's betrayal in that story, um, Aslan decides that he is going to die and give his life on the stone table to save Edmund and to save Narnia. And so he dies on the stone table, the witch is triumphant, but then as Aslan says, when he rises at the sunrise, she did not know the deep magic because if she had truly known the deep magic, she would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery gives his life in return for that of a traitor, that the stone table will crack and death itself will work backwards, and it is glorious. And in that first book, the very first time the Chronicles of Narnia, the the name Aslan comes up, there's this passage. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan Felt if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and you realize it is the beginning of the holidays. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he uh, quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Aslan is one of the great characters of all fiction and such a beautiful representation of Jesus. Tyrion um, doesn't actually appear in the other stories, but he is a descendant of the House of Kings in Narnia. He's a young man in his 20s, and the story, he's the rightful king of Narnia, being the seventh king, descended from King Rillion, who was the son of King Caspian the 10th. Now you'll remember in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that that was King Caspian the first. So we're talking lots of history has gone by, but remember in Narnia, time goes at a different pace than it does in our world. So Tyrion has never seen Aslan in the flesh. He has heard of Aslan. He believes in Aslan and seeks to follow him. And he believes all the stories that have been told him about Narnia and the old days and the great deeds of the people who followed Aslan, but he's taking all of it on faith. He's never actually seen or met Aslan in a physical sense. Now, the next two characters are ones who appear in the silver chair. And again, if, you, um, if you're only going to read one other chronicle, which would be such a pity to read just one other, but if you're only going to read one, please read the silver chair uh, because it will really give you a lot of insight into Jill and Eustace. And Jill and Eustace are key characters in this story. So Eustace Scrub. Uh, is one of the principal characters in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That's where we meet him. And he is the odious cousin of the Pevensey children. The Pevenseys are Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund. And in the Oxford English Dictionary, the third definition of scrub is as follows, an insignificant or contemptible person or a player, not among the best or most skilled. Eustace is introduced as follows. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. He didn't call his father and mother, father and mother, but Harold and Alberta. They were very up-to-date and advanced people. They were vegetarians, non-smokers, and teetotalers, and wore a special kind of underclothes. And in their house there was very little furniture, and very few clothes on beds, and the windows were always open. So Eustace is not somebody that you would probably want to hang out with. However, what happens is on the voyage of the Dawn Treader on the ship, He's so obnoxious and he complains nonstop from the moment he wakes up till the moment he goes to bed. And ultimately, because he complains so much, he wakes up one day in the midst of his greed and discovers he has become a dragon. And as he is in the dragon lair, um, he begins to think about what kind of boy he has been. And he realizes that perhaps he has not been the nicest, most pleasant boy. Perhaps he has not really been very good. And perhaps he has been very selfish and greedy. And so as he begins to realize these things, great tears fall from his dragon eyes. And Aslan comes to meet him at this pool. Edmund, uh, rather Eustace, uh, the dragon, begs for Aslan to heal him. And Aslan says he is willing and that he needs to come into the pool, which is, of course, was full of baptismal imagery. But Aslan says to him, you must undress first. And so Eustace thinks, oh, the dragon skin, I can shed the first layer like a snake does. And so he does that, and Aslan's like, no, no. No, you need to shed all of your dragonness before you come into this pool, much like our sin. And then Aslan says, The only way that you can shed all of that dragon skin is if I undress you. And so Eustace looks into Aslan's eyes and trusts him and says, Please. And Aslan takes his mighty paw and claw and goes to the back of the dragon and goes and rips through the skin. And it is the most painful, awful, and Eustace thinks he's going to die. And then as Aslan does it again, Eustace begins to realize he can move. And finally, he's totally freed of this dragon skin and can go into the water and he experiences joy that he has never felt in all of his life being set free, being clean, and being in relationship with Aslan. And the result of this encounter with Aslan, of entering the water, being baptized, coming into relationship with Aslan, transforms Eustace into an utterly different boy. And Lewis puts it this way, back in our own world, everyone started saying how Eustace had improved and how you'd never know him for the same boy everyone except Aunt Alberta, who said he had become very commonplace and tiresome, and it must have been the influence of those Pevensey children. So Eustace goes on to become the hero, along with Jill, uh, who is another student at Experiment House. Now, Experiment House, I would love to spend a whole class on Experiment House, Um, but Experiment House is Lewis's caricature of the worst kind of school that there is. The kind of school that makes you hate learning. The kind of school that you dread getting up and going to. The kind of school that makes you feel stupid. The kind of school that crushes your spirit. And Lewis felt like there was no excuse for a school to be run that way. And it is a school where the adults don't care about the children and they're all into their own power games and bullying is rampant at the school. And Eustace, you can imagine with a name like Eustace Clarence Scrub, Eustace is bullied. So we hear about that, but not at the beginning because the beginning of The Silver Chair is one of the most remarkable things in British children's literature written in the 1950s by a man. The protagonist of The Silver Chair is a bullied middle school girl. Now, that may not seem radical to you, but for England in the 1950s, that was radical. And that girl is Jill Pole. And we first meet here, her, in the opening scene of The Silver Chair. She is unpopular, all of the other girls pick on her, pull her hair, call her names, and it is recess, and that's the worst period because there's no supervision. So she goes to hide so they can't find her and she's hiding behind this wall and crying because she's so miserable and she hates school so much. She's alone at first, desperate, sad, and hopeless. Lewis puts it this way, Jill looked round and saw the dull autumn sky and heard the drip off the leaves and thought of all the hopelessness of Experiment House. It was a 13-week term, and there were still 11 weeks to come. The bullies are referred to ominously as them. And the expectation at the school seems to be that one ought to spend all one's time sucking up to them and currying favor and dancing attendance upon them. Jill and Eustace, who refer to each other only by their last names, Pole and Scrub become allies through their mutual fear of them, literally shuddering with fear at the thought of how they will torture them if caught. Yet, these two frightened outcasts go on to be the heroes of the silver chair and are used by Aslan to accomplish a vital quest. So, There are a bunch of themes in here. I didn't even put all of them on here. We're gonna be unpacking a lot of stuff. Uh, But one of the big themes is the importance of faith. Remember we talked about Tyrion believed in Aslan with all his heart and wanted to follow him. Uh, But all of his relationship with Aslan is based on faith because Aslan's last appearance in Narnia was thousands of years before. Does that sound familiar? Uh, There's also a lot in this book about the nature of evil and the fact that evil is a real thing and that it's dangerous and that if you compromise with it, you never know what may happen. There also is a fabulous subtext on the danger of theological innovation. If you try to change your understanding that has been handed down for generations of what your faith teaches and what its holy word teaches, that is not gonna end well. Um, The essentiality of truth, how really important it is to tell and speak the truth and only the truth and the danger of deceit, even little shadings of truth that mislead people, that deceit, can cause major problems. The power of language, how important it is to use words correctly and to hold on to their real meaning and not allow them to be co-opted, particularly by the government, to mean things that they didn't used to mean. Not that that might sound familiar. Uh, But there's also a big piece in here which is something that I think most of us have forgotten, but it is absolutely a scriptural concept that when you go through the creation story in Genesis and you see the beautiful firmament and the sea and the trees and the fields and the flowers and the animals, everything is created and then man and woman are created. Man and woman are the only ones where God says, and it was very good. But man and woman are also, out of all creation, the only things God created with the power of speech. And what Lewis is trying to convey to us is that part of being in the image of God is having the gift and privilege of speech. And we need to be very mindful of what we do with that privilege. There also is a major theme about loyalty, uh, something that our culture could, again, take some lessons from. There also is a big subtext about the danger of cynicism, of choosing to just hang it up, to say, you know, everything's bad, everything is going to hell in a handbasket, and nothing I do can make any difference. Nothing is ever gonna get better. There's no hope. There's no anything that I can do. Love, peace, joy, hope, beauty, truth, goodness. Those are all um, not real things. They don't really matter. And Lewis says that kind of cynicism is very dangerous. Uh, There also is a major theme about trusting in worldly power and politics and the danger of corrupt leaders. I say no more. Um, And then, much like we saw in The Great Divorce, there is a beautiful teaching on the reality of heaven and the joy of eternal life. Uh, Much like in The Great Divorce, where we had those great passages that made your heart long for the joy of heaven. So there's some great linkages with The Great Divorce, this whole part about heaven and what that's like, um, the part about what hell is like and about people who don't want to give up that thing that they want to hold on to um, that's so important to them. And we see that in the last battle. But it's also a lot like that hideous strength for those of you who are here for that class um, with the nice, this group that thinks that they know what everybody else needs and so they're gonna do it to them for their own good. And there's a lot of that going on in this book as well. Uh, one of the beautiful things about this book, um, and I'm getting ready to close, but uh, some years ago, uh, I think in 2016, uh, I was leading a Lewis study pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimage in Oxford, and we had uh, decided to go to St. Ab's Church uh, that morning, which is a wonderful old evangelical church there, and their pastor, their priest is a man named Vaughn Roberts. And Vaughn Roberts is one of the greatest evangelical Anglican preachers that there is. Um, I'm delighted to tell you that he is coming to Charleston. Uh, He is gonna be the preacher for the mere Anglicanism Eucharist. And then, we just got word today, he's gonna preach at St. Philip's the Sunday afterwards. And that is gonna be, don't miss it. Uh, One of the beautiful things is that I'd never met him until 2016. And we went to this church service on this Lewis pilgrimage, and he was preaching on Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 is the new heavens and the new earth, and God will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And Vaughn is a brilliant scholar. Justin can tell you about the books that he's written that Justin studied. And so he was quoting all of these theologians and things written in German about what heaven is like. And then he stopped and he said, but really, if you really want to understand what the witness of the entirety of the scriptures is about what heaven is like, you could do much worse than to read C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. And then he went on to unpack the imagery of heaven in the last battle and why it is so consonant with what the scriptures teach, which was so cool. Uh, So with that, this is a little tidbit of what we have to look forward to. And I'm just gonna read this. Uh, I would encourage you to perhaps close your eyes and just listen uh, as we uh, hear these words from the last battle. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among the mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite the window, there may have been a looking glass mirror. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again, but in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror, or the valley in the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story and a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right fork on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though. I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that sometimes it looked a little like this. Brihihi, come further up, come further in. And with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you for the great gift of this book. We thank you for all of the themes from your word and from your kingdom that it reflects. We pray that as we go on this pilgrimage, seeking to learn more about Aslan, seeking to learn more about Jesus, seeking to learn what it means to be followers of Jesus and to be citizens of his kingdom and our culture today, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our guide. Lord, I thank you for each person here tonight, and I pray your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple of things. Um, if you didn't get one, please get this handout. Even if you're on the beach, it's so good it's worth getting off your towel to look at. Um, Secondly, uh, please remember if you're not on the email list to do that, and also please try to meet someone you don't know before you go home tonight. Thank you so much for being here.